Okay, you have never met this gentleman. His name is C. Red Fred. He is the most optimistic Bulls fan, but he's been vacillating this year. He has been getting his fanhood questioned. Hey, Fred, what's up, man? Cap, I love you. Kyle, thanks for your work with the beloved Bear, and uh, thanks for your work with the beloved Cap. Great stuff, man. Really been enjoying it. Thanks, man. Hey, I know it's cool to bury my my bowls at this, you know, hopeless disaster, but I do have to point out our four best players are all 24 and under. And you know what? I'm old enough to remember my friends in Milwaukee a few years ago in 2016 when the Bucks won 33 games with Chris Middleton and Giannis on that team. A lot of the same things were said about that team. I also remember 2012 when the Warriors won 23 games with a young Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. I heard a lot of the same things from my friends in San Francisco. Now, I'm not saying that this team, we should do nothing. But I do want to point out the problems with this team this year, to me, have a lot more to do with coaching and player development than the talent. Like, we've blown so many huge leads against good teams. It's a second-half lead, like 19 points versus the Lakers, 26 points against Oklahoma City, seven against Indiana with three minutes left. That's a sign of a talented young team that has not yet learned to win. It's not a sign of a disaster. It's not like we're New York. My question so for you, heard- Fred, is this. Yeah. Because you're clearly coming with a lot of facts, and it's tough to argue with a guy with facts and, and referencing history. And I can see why they like you so much here in studio. The one thing that's different from the teams that you said, Milwaukee and Oklahoma City, or I'm sorry, Golden State, the Bay Area, which is, you know, they're, they're good markets. Chicago's different. Chicago, the fuse is shorter. The patience is less. People expect greatness, and I understand they have, they have four players under the age of 24. To me, that's very important. Now, if this roster is playing in Milwaukee, do we give them more time? We're in Chicago, and as you know, see Red Fred, I'm telling you by your name, we're nuts here. We're crazy about sports. We don't have time. Well, it doesn't make it right, though. It's just something to chew yeah. on. But, Kyle, your brother just said, he said, he talked about a player in the NFL, and he talked about scheme. Well, scheme matters for basketball, too. Yeah. Are we asking our talent to adapt to the system, or are we adapting the system to talent? I can't see how anyone with an IQ over 80 could say, we're putting Larry Markin in a position to succeed with this team this year. So I'm not, I, I don't want to act like, I, I think it's incorrect to say there's no hope for this Chicago Bulls team because I see Larry Markin and Wendell Carter Jr. And, and Zach Levine and Kobe White, and I say that is the core four of what could grow into a contender. It's just not going to happen with this guy as head coach because he's incompetent. We, we really appreciate your call. Appreciate Thanks your so passion. Much, and your love for the Bulls, but this thing's in a bad spot. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another exciting edition of Chicago Bullseye. What you just heard was my visit with Cap and Kyle Long on Thursday. Uh, I just had to try to bring some positivity to the Chicago Airwaves after just the sea of negativity, of anger and frustration. You know, a lot of it justified. I'm not going to try to argue with the fact that we should all be angry and mad as Bulls fans, but I still do feel big picture that this is a situation with four young players, all 24 and under, and Zach Levine, Wendell Cutter Jr., Laurie Markin, and, and Kobe White. I do believe under different leadership, this team will develop into a contender and potential title winner. I do believe that. I know I'm probably alone on an island with that belief, but to me, this situation is nowhere near as bad as it is in New York or Cleveland or some of these other locations that are going through a rebuild. 
And I think that a lot of the anger is overblown. Uh, but I do understand the frustration. Believe me, I do. Because this year should have been much, much better than it currently is. And now with the injuries, really, there's very little hope unless these players return quickly. There still is hope. I still feel that if Otto comes back and Wendell Carter Jr., uh, especially those two players, if they come back within the next two weeks, I think it is possible for us to still get in as an eighth, eighth seed. We have that much talent on the team. Uh, despite the incompetence of our head coach. But uh, if, you know, regardless, if it doesn't happen, I think there's going to be major changes, and, and most of you who listen to this will get your wish. And and I kind of feel it's about time. I think the I, – I do agree with almost every draft pick, every trade, every signing over the last couple of years. I think John Paxson is an excellent judge of talent. But for him to turn over the development of this team to Jim Boylan was a massive mistake. And it is a mistake that I think uh, probably would require a change in direction. So so what you're about to hear now is actually an interview with the great Kevin Anderson from NBC Sports Chicago. This was actually recorded about a month ago. And lo and behold, the disaster that was a month ago is a disaster today. All these topics that we're talking about are timely. Uh, what, what members of the core four, we asked him to rank the, the core four and tell me which players that he thinks does he think are most likely to be uh, you know, superstars or at least all-stars, you know, transformational players for the beloved Bull. Uh, so we have, we get into a number of timeless topics. And then, of course, after the first 20 minutes, we get into an extensive Star Wars discussion. So I hope you enjoy it. I am going to cut um, a larger, longer version of our Star Wars discussions, hopefully over the next few weeks. It's just this year, especially January, was insane with the amount of uh, coaching I had going on and work going on for my real job. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was coaching or five nights a week, Monday through Friday, after immediately after work, either as a head coach for my son's grade school team or as an assistant for his travel team. So that took up a lot of my time, and I apologize for not getting out more episodes. As that winds down, I promise you I'll try to get more out. But some more exciting news. I am joining forces with the leader of uh, Dogable Nation. I might not call him the leader of Dogable Nation. I think Mark's a little bit better than that. But uh, Mark asked me to join Bulls HQ. And after uh, careful consideration with family and friends, I thought it would be a good idea. Mark is a good friend of mine. And I think we do have some interesting conversations from vastly different viewpoints. Sometimes we agree. Uh, I think it makes for good listening, for hopefully, and I hope you feel the same way. Love to get your feedback on that, but I think we're going to record our first episode in a couple of weeks. And I am doing hot mic work. So uh, more to come on that, too, on the next uh, episode, which I'll be putting out shortly with Michael Walton. So um, I hope all is well with you and Bulls World and things get hopefully brighter soon. I think they will once we got start getting some of these players back. Right now it's a it's an incredibly awful watch. But uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast here with Kevin Anderson of Chicago, NBC Chicago Sports. Godspeed, my friends. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another exciting edition of Chicago Bullseye. And, of course, we have the most popular guest in the Chicago Bullseye, the great Kevin Anderson of NBC Sports Chicago. Before we get into Star Wars, we do have to get into some uh, Bulls topics. This is a special Star Wars-centric episode. Our past discussions have always yielded many emails of uh you know what a great discussion etc so we're going to get into that with the uh the resident expert on on the great star wars franchise but before we get into that i want to get into a couple bulls topics and this one's actually combined with the bears 
uh, I was on with Waddle and Sylvie yesterday and had and, and posed this question, and I wanted to get your opinion. Who do you have more faith in uh, in, in the future, John Paxson or Ryan Pace? That's a really tough question. Uh, honestly, I'm going Paxson because I have, after hearing Pace's uh, end-of-season wrap-up comments, I have zero confidence he has any idea what he's doing and that if he can't see the mistakes he made in drafting Trubisky and scouting Trubisky and yet after three years of Trubisky and still feels that Trubisky is their, their future, uh, if he doesn't see that, uh, then I, I, have, I have zero confidence that that pace is going to uh, do anything of, of note and turn the Bears around. I mean, they've had one solid season uh, under his tenure, and you know, don't I don't, I don't want to hear this eight and eight business with them. Uh, they were out of the playoff hunt by week ten, and they completely have blown it in regards to putting a team together to uh, to be a contender. So I've, I've got no confidence at all that Pacers could be able to turn things around. I agree, hundred percent. That's the correct answer too. And when you look at it, top ten picks, Pacers had three top ten picks in Kevin White, Floyd. And Mitch Trubisky, you can argue all three of those have been bust. Definitely Floyd. Uh, I, I mean, definitely uh, White. I think Floyd's could be classified as a bust after this season. I've had it with him. And yeah, his sack totals have gone way down. Yeah, and Trubisky. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. Whereas if you look at John Paxson, the one mistake he's made out of his nine top ten picks, he made one mistake, and that was Tyrus Thomas. Now you, and that was very similar to Mitch Trubisky in that if you compare them after three seasons. There were a lot of people in Chicago talking about how talented Tyrus Thomas is. He's shown flashes. He's a good player. He can block shots. And what did they do? You had two teams that wanted him badly in the Nets and Charlotte. And instead of you know burying your head in the sand and living with the mistake, they traded him. They moved him for a number one pick. And you know that's one thing I can say about Paxson is he recognizes his mistakes and he doesn't live with it for year after year. And after what we've seen of Pace in this press conference, I'm mortified. And I agree with you. Yeah. Just compare and contrast. The other thing is, like, honestly, it goes back to the 2017 NFL draft. And they're not, for multiple reports, not doing their due diligence in finding a franchise quarterback, um, not giving, certainly, Deshaun Watson a much closer look than they gave him. And, you know, I get it that most teams didn't have Mahomes as high as, as he was. I give them a slight pass for Mahomes. But there was no reason at all to just completely bypass Deshaun Watson and what he had done at the collegiate level and certainly what he's done at the NFL level now is uh, is validated that. But to, to trade up to get Trubisky and then have all his flaws and his small sample size at North Carolina, and to see what we've seen in three years. Like, he has got a lot of the talent, the physical tools to be a great quarterback. But after three years, he still can't read coverages correctly. He still can't get to the line of scrimmage and make a change in the play because of what the defense is showing him. He's never going to do it. He's not going to learn. I don't want to hear this Drew Brees didn't start playing well until after his third year two BS. Like, Trubisky has shown me nothing to show that he is going to be anything close to a all-pro level quarterback. Agree 100%.
On to the beloved bull focus before we get into Star Wars. I got to ask you this question. Now, I'm still alone on an island with the belief that I do feel that uh, Zach Levine, Laurie Markin, and Wendell Carter Jr. and Kobe White can form the core of a contender and possibly a championship winning team. I know no one believes that. I doubt you believe it. But I would like you to rank in order one, two, three, four out of those four players. Who do you feel most confident in as a potential? for a title-contending team? That's tough because all four have significant flaws right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you, you got to give the most leeway to Kobe because, you know, where he hasn't even played a half a season, he's played 35 games in his uh, NBA career, and you're going to be very inconsistent as a rookie, and he's shown flashes of brilliance, as we've seen during quick stretches, uh, remind me of Ben Gordon, and he's shown other wildly inconsistent stretches. So of those four, I'm going to put Kobe fourth, mainly because uh, the sample size is so small, and, and he's just so inconsistent with his play. I mean, he'll go he'll go three for 14 one game, and then go eight yes. for 11 another game, and then just the, the turnovers can be maddening at times. The um, three-point shooting is certainly brilliant at times. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a chucker out there. I don't I really don't consider him a point guard from what we've seen from him on the floor. He's a kind of secondary scorer. I think his ceiling to me right now is probably a Ben Gordon-type player, and that's not necessarily bad. Ben Gordon had a very good career. certainly was a huge part of those Bulls' playoff runs for you know a good time with your friend Kirk Heinrich and Lou Aldang and others. But I put Kobe, Kobe fourth there. Uh, third, I would put Wendell. Uh, Wendell has shown me that he can be a great player. Like, he's got all-star potential. But yet, there are things about Wendell's game that greatly concern me. And number one being his hands. He has trouble catching the ball around the rim, and I don't know if it's because of his size or his just lack of clutch right now or development, but I, don't, I can't tell you how many times a game... I see him get a, a, a pass inside and he just fumbles it. You know, he, yeah, he yeah. just is, uh, he's like uh, Ernest Bynum awesome. back there kind of fumbling the ball. Yeah. Um, and so, like, that that concerns me. But at the same time, he's got amazing defensive instincts, great defensive instincts. Uh, and he is starting to develop a mid-range to beyond jump shot, which is really good to see. And they're kind of unleashing Wendell to that. Now, he's, he's, he's started to develop a three-point shot, which is absolutely fantastic, and you almost need to have as a big in today's league. Uh, but yet, there are still many holes in this game. But, again, we're talking a injury-shortened rookie season, and now, midway through his sophomore season, uh, there's still a lot of upside to be had there. So, uh, I'm still pretty high on Wendell. I think he can be an all-star type player, but he's, he's got a lot of holes in this game that he needs to work on. But to be honest, what like 20-year-old uh, doesn't have multiple holes um, in their game? So yeah. that's that's absolutely still a story to be written uh, from Wendell Carter in that respect. Uh, number three is a guy that, I'm sorry, number two would be a guy that I think I'm like, everyone's rooting for and wants to be great, and that is Laurie Markkinen. Um, Markkinen has shown at times whether it's the stretch of last February or certain games this season, like the season opener against Charlotte, 
which you believe Lindell is a foundation, or uh, Laurie is a foundation piece that the Bulls can build around. Um, but then he goes through stretches, like basically games 2 through 20 this season, in which he is tentative, he seemingly doesn't look for a shot, he goes cold from distance, unlike uh, like he was John Starks playing the Bulls, and just you can't hit anything. And so, like, he's, like, I want to see much like we talked about Mitchell Trubisky, like, Larry Markkinen should be taking a, a much bigger step up in year three. Yep. And we, we are not seeing that right now. And so, like, I'm, uh, to quote David Watson, uh, Big Dave on Bulls Outsiders, uh, Big Dave had an absolutely perfect quote, which I absolutely believe in. He said uh, about Larry Markkinen that I haven't given up on Larry. I'm completely disappointed, but I haven't given up on him yet. And yeah. that, I completely agree with Big Dave in that assessment, that I'm very disappointed overall in what we've seen from Laurie this season. I'm not going to give up on him because he, he has shown these flashes. He has shown the ability that he can be a cornerstone player on a, a, a championship-level team. Um, and again, a young player has a lot of room to grow. We're not talking about players in their late 20s who are in their prime. I mean, you, we've got to, like, look at through at this roster through that lens. You're not judging Jimmy Butler right now, right? You're not jump, judging a, a player in their prime, in their late 20s, in which they have all the tools and have developed all the skills. We're talking about kids. We're talking about kids who are trying to learn how to win and trying to learn how to play. And so there's still a lot of development to come in Laurie Markin's game. Um, and then furthermore, Zach Levine right now has shown me among that foursome, Zach Levine has shown me that he has, has the most potential. He's still only 24 years old. Uh, he is absolutely a dynamic scorer. Um, he's, he's certainly, when he is on and when he is hot, um, he, he's a top five scorer in this league. Uh, he has that ability. Um, he has flaws in his game on the defensive end. Though he has been improving in that regard, when he is engaged defensively, when he is locked in and focused, he can be an adequate defender. Agreed. He just has those moments in which he uh, loses track of his man because he's looking at the ball and there's a backdoor cut, and oh my goodness, I just I'm 15 feet away from the guy I'm defending right now. Like that, that happens to Zach more often than I would like. Uh, but he's a, he's a decent on-ball defender. Um, and uh, he certainly is learning and improving defensively. But, you know, he, he didn't really have anywhere to go but up in terms of his defensive uh, showing this year. Um, I still would like him to be a little bit more consistent offensively. He's a guy I think should be scoring 25 a night regardless of the situation. I'm a little disappointed that he's not getting to the free-throw line more. Uh, he was getting to the free-throw line more earlier in the season, and he seems to be relying a little too much on his jump shot, which he's certainly a very good perimeter shooter. I mean, Zach has taken a significant step up in his perimeter shooting, uh, and there's a reason that, you know, he is dangerous from 24 feet out, 25 feet out at any time. I mean, he's hitting just under 40% from three uh, this season. He's at a career-high clip uh, from three. And so he's, he's improving in that regard, which is really good to see. And, you know, at his age, he still has room to grow. I mean, most guys in the NBA don't hit their prime until 27 or 28. So he's not even 25 yet. Um, so I, I still think Zach can be 
I don't think like one A. I think he can give, he can be that one B or even that third player on a championship level team. I don't think the Bulls have right now that number one cornerstone that you're going to say this is the guy we build around. I don't I don't think they have that player right now. And I and I used to think I agree with you. I used to think that Laurie Markkinen could have been that guy, and I've changed and he on still that. Could be. See, I, I disagree. Still could be. I see. I, I disagree with the the fact that I think to be a top ten guy, you got to have a certain level of selfishness. You have to be a certain level of I need the ball, and he just doesn't yeah. have that. I think that's something that's really hard to just all of a sudden get at whatever age you are. In fact, I've never seen it. You know, I I I, I think maybe Jimmy Butler. To a certain extent, but even Jimmy, I think, right. had a certain selfishness built in, and, and where it's like I'm going to demand that, and and for whatever reason, Larry is just doesn't have that. So I I don't think he's top ten. I don't think he has got top ten. I still think you're. I agree with you that he could be a cornerstone of a contender and be the second guy and be top twenty five, which is still great. Uh, but I just like and 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 not only that. I can't recall many massive, huge shots where Larry Markkinen's made to win a game for the Bulls. And that's why I, I just feel like he's not that guy. Am I wrong in that assertion? So you're correct in that he hasn't shown that he is that guy. And I think there's a, a distinction between he hasn't shown it and he'll never be it. I agree he hasn't shown it. I don't agree that he will never develop that or he won't be that guy eventually. I would like him to be more aggressive. Uh, I would like him, honestly, to be a little bit meaner on the court, yeah. if that makes Agreed. sense. Um, I, I think he comes across on the floor as too nice. And that's hard to really quantify because um, like you know, you don't need to go out there and start throwing elbows. You don't need him to be Bill Lambeer and knock somebody on their ass. Like You don't need that, but at the same time, I do think he needs to be more aggressive in getting his own shot and be more selfish at times. If this Bulls team is going to succeed in the 2019-20 season, it's going to be because Laurie Markkinen and Zach Levine are playing at a very high level. And if they fail, it's because one or both those players aren't giving it, are uh, getting it from them on a given night. All great points. I think let's look at Levine really quick before we move on to Star Wars. I do have to say this. To me, Levine has been too hero ballish for the majority of games, and it look when it, when he's hitting like he did against Charlotte. Oh my gosh, it's fantastic! So when he's like doubling his three point attempts from his free throw line attempts, I never think that's good. And I hear a lot of people defend him by saying, "Well, you know, who else is going to step up? Who else can step up? He's got the ball all the time." Like, yeah. and and that's my problem with Laurie is I think Laurie's got to tell Zach. Hey, get me some shots, and I don't think he has that in him. I don't think he's 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 looking for that conflict with his teammate. I don't see it. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe you're right. Maybe he can develop that. But the Bulls far too often this season have kind of devolved into Zach's going to take the ball, and we're going our fortunes down the stretch are going to be based on how he does. And the one game I thought he was much more of a facilitator was the Washington game. I thought he played incredible and facilitated for other players. But I keep on hearing the defenders say, well, he's got more clutch points. We've been in a ton of games where, where it's been close and in that state, and of course he's going to score more if he's shooting a ton. You know, I like Zach a lot, but I agree with you too that he's like a third guy or second guy, not the one. 
Yeah, and in regards to Zach, like I get why Borland's letting Zach run the offense in late and close games. Um, like I, I get that because like it's almost the narrative of this season has has switched from the goal of making the playoffs to now developing players, and you could see it on the floor. Uh, they may not be saying that publicly because they publicly still want to make the postseason, and they still, because of the way the Eastern Conference is, they still have today, January third, still have a shot at that. And that may change by the end of this month, given their absolute brutal schedule in January. Uh, but right now, they're trying to develop uh, Zach to be the closer on this team, and he's like every every possession, every shot he takes uh, is in crunch time is him learning, is him improving. Whether he makes the shot or doesn't, it's him learning and getting better. Uh, the problem is you're still talking about the second-to-worst offense in the entire NBA. Yep. Uh, They're still 29th in the league in offensive rating. And for as, as, as much recognition that the defense has gotten, currently fifth in the NBA uh, this season, the offense is just is been stagnant and we haven't seen any improvement there and whether it's the play calls or the, the injuries and playing guys out of position or just the the roster itself it's not getting better we're not seeing improvement and that's that's a little concerning to me because I was hoping like we, we certainly have chronicled at length how this team started in October and November uh, and the struggles they had then but in the month of December, they were still 25th in the league in offensive rating. So you're not really seeing a, a noticeable improvement in how their offense is run. And you, you can go a laundry list of reasons why, but it's just the bottom line is it's not improving and the wins aren't coming at more than a one out of three rate. I mean, they're, they're still on track for 27 or 28 wins this season. And that would be the third straight year of winning games in the 20s. And that's, that's, that's tough to swallow. Agree 100%. Hey, two more really quick ones on the Bulls. Kobe White, I agree 100%. Like, though, I do hear a lot of people comparing him to Ben Gordon, and I do disagree with that. And just the fact that there are similarities. They're both coming off the bench primarily, giving us huge amounts of offense in some games. But, you know, Ben Gordon was 10 times a shooter as White is. Ben Gordon never shot less than 40% from three for for the Chicago Bulls. It's He's a leech, elite shooter who was ahead of his time in an era where they didn't shoot as many threes. Kobe White, I mean, 3 of 11 last night, 0 for 4 from 3. He's got far too many of those games, and he's always either really good you know, or really bad. It's never like right in the middle. And uh, I have, you know, I love the kid's attitude. I love everything about him, but I have major concerns about his shooting. I had it when I evaluated him at North Carolina. I hope I hope he, he, he's got the work ethic and he's such a good kid that you think he's going to get better. Um, but I do have concerns about him being great, you know. So. Yeah, and, you know, like, it's uh, it's so hard to project. Like, I saw a tweet the other day, like, where are these superstars in the, from the NBA of the, the last two rookie classes, right? Uh, and that's so hard to judge. Outside of a, a couple, like, really dynamic and special players, um, like LeBron and, and Luka, others, yeah. like, yeah, yeah Luca. Like it's hard to say of first and second year players that this guy is going to be a superstar. And we could say that about Luka Doncic, absolutely. Um, but like it, it's hard to project what kind of player Kobe White's going to be in five years. Uh, he, it's going to be uh, determined on his work ethic, his 
development, his coaching staff and how it develops him, uh, and, and really what kind of player he wants to be. He certainly has the skill set. He's got the speed. He's got the athleticism. He's got that De'Aaron Fox uh, attributes in him. Uh, but he's got to develop him. He's got to work at it. You know, if, if he doesn't, you know, and it's my understanding he is in the gym all the time. Uh, but if he, for some reason, stops doing that, he's not going to develop. He's not going to be the player that we think he hope we hope he can be. One last question before we go to Star Wars. Chris Dunn, restricted free agent at the end of this year. I love his defense. I think he's just elite. I think he's all NBA all defensive player. But no doubt, he's a frustrating player on the offensive end. You know, I, I think he's been a little bit better facilitating this season, but he clearly is taking a step back at shooting, which is, you know, very unfortunate. What do you think the Bulls – there's seven teams, I believe, that have cap space. Um, there are teams like Atlanta, the Knicks. Um, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. A lot of them have point guards already. What do you think the Bulls yeah. should do with, with Chris Dunn? Uh, I still think they actively are trying to shop him and will – engage in trade discussions for him before the February deadline. I, I think right now, wow. Chris Dunn, I agree. Uh, he's an elite defensive player, and he certainly is one of the big reasons that they lead the league in steals and that they are fifth in NBA in defensive rating. as a large part to do due to Chris Dunn. Uh, however, he's playing out of place starting at the three spot right now, and that's because your two starting small forwards are hurt. Uh, so you're essentially forced to because Shaq Harrison at the three really wasn't working at all. Um, and so like he, he's being forced to play out of position and he's being forced to play a role that isn't working. Chris Dunn's best scenario and best role on a team is first or second guy off the bench, lockdown defender, coming in, getting a defensive stop, stops, and being a, a fifth option on the offense right now. And he certainly is the fifth option on the Bulls offense. But when you're playing Chris Dunn 30 minutes a night and he's only giving you three points, uh, there's an issue there. He's a complete liability. Um, if he, Let me put it this way. There's the comparison a lot of people make to guys like Lonzo Ball and Ben Simmons, who are also very good defensive players and also not good perimeter shooters, right? Yep. So that that you know, on face value is a fair comparison to Chris Dunn. However, both those players are much better facilitators on the offensive end. We're not seeing Chris Dunn doesn't run an offense like Ricky Rubio, uh, like a Chris Paul, like a, a true point guard. Like Alonzo Ball. Lockdown defender. Yeah. yeah. Or Alonzo Ball, right? Uh, and the other thing is Chris Dunn is not a good finisher at the rim. So he's not like a Ben Simmons who is going to be a very good defender, great defender, facilitate the offense, weak on the perimeter shooting, but is a great rim finisher. Um, Dunn's not a very good rim finisher. He consistently will drive and pass out when he's five feet from the rim because he thinks he's going to get a shot blocked, or he just misses a layup. Um, and so uh, the problem is that Dunn overall – He's a great defender, but he's below average in almost every other aspect of his game. And so there's nothing wrong with that, having that type of player in your team. There is a role for a player of his caliber on every team in this league. It's expecting him to be a viable guy on both ends of the floor when you play him 30 minutes a night, that it then becomes an issue and is, is glaring. Let's, let's go on to a little bit more pleasant topic right now, and a controversial one, surprisingly to me. The rise bit, of Skywalker. Yeah. I'm so excited to get into this, and a lot of listeners are. we got 15 minutes. 
I'd like to hear first your general thoughts on the film, and I'm going to get you, get some more specifics on it. Uh, but let's let's start out with your general thoughts. Number one, where does it rank in, in, among all the other films? Uh, and then just you know let let it uh, stream of consciousness on your thoughts on the film. Sure. So there um, there are two ways to look at this film, and I, I think it's important to have that distinction when talking about the Rise of Skywalker and how people feel about it. As an individual film, I thought it was borderline great. It was immensely enjoyable to watch. It had these great set pieces. There, the acting from Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley was was absolutely fantastic. It was fun. It had great moments. It had some uh, it had thrills. It had some surprises. As an individual film, I loved it. Uh, I actually have it fourth on my of the eleven. Star Wars films, uh, I've got a fourth. Uh, I, I really liked it that much. I, I thought it was a a really fun watch. I left, I left the theater. I've seen it twice now. It actually, it was even better the second time that I saw it. Because mm. The first time you see a, a film of this magnitude, you're trying to like absorb everything and be like, oh, what, what did I just see? What is happening? You're like your brain's kind of on overload. The second time you see it, I'm able to like kind of like I know what's going to happen, so I can enjoy it a little bit more. I can enjoy. The music, uh, which John Williams is uh, as big a part of Star Wars as Mark Hamill is, yes. uh, and so um, his score just jumped out at certain times, which was fantastic, and I really appreciated that on the second viewing. And the little things that I, I noticed on the second viewing made me enjoy the film a little bit more. Um, so, as an individual film, as a Star Wars film, I loved it. However, if you look at The Rise of Skywalker through the lens of being the third film in this third trilogy, or even through the lens of being the, what quite frankly is the 11th film, wrapping up an 11th film uh, series, which is impossible to do anyway, but if you look at it through that lens, there are a lot of holes and a lot of mistakes that they did. Specific to being the third film in this trilogy, it felt disjointed. The, the Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and now The Rise of Skywalker are not three cohesive films. They don't flow together very well, and that's that's a shame because there's no reason that they shouldn't have. Like, just because they had two different directors, the, it, there shouldn't be any reason at all that they're as disjointed as they are, but yet they feel disjointed, and that in itself is on Kathleen Kennedy and how she is running uh, the Disney Lucasfilm group, and and that's that's on her because you know quite frankly, you can give George Lucas a pass for making it up as he went along and he, as he created the original trilogy, and he did. There are there are, are massive story changes that George Lucas made from A New Hope to Empire to then Return of the Jedi. I mean, he had certainly the most glaring of, of which is he had Luke and Leia as love interests for essentially the first two films, and then all of a sudden your brother and sister in yeah. the third film. Lucas, Lucas made it up as he went along, right? Like, he, he originally did not intend for Anakin to be Darth Vader. Like, so when, when Obi-Wan Kenobi, when, when Ben is telling Luke that Darth Vader killed your father, when he wrote that line, that was that's how Lucas intended it. But then he thought, ah, oh, you know what? When I'm writing Empire, this would be a lot more... Uh, engaging a, a lot 
you know, a huge moment if it turns out that Anakin is Darth Vader and it turns out. I never knew. I never why, knew that before. That's why you get the a, a certain point of view speech from uh, from Obi Wan. Are you sure that's? true? I've never heard that before. I've always wondered that's that. My, but you're telling that's me that's my understanding that that Lucas originally did not intend that in the original draft of A New Hope. He did not intend Anakin to be Darth Vader. Okay. Wow. Uh, maybe that's me getting bad information, but that's that's my understanding yeah. originally. And, and certainly um, there, there are multiple aspects of the original trilogy that changed over time and certainly changed as he went and did the prequels and retconning certain things. Like a, a glaring example, which he's never been able, Lucas can't fix, but is a, a, a major plot hole in which Star Wars fans completely gloss over because we have no choice. Uh, there's a scene in Return of the Jedi in which, in which, on Endor, Luke has found out that Leia's his sister. He's gotten confirmation from Yoda, right, and and Ben that Leia's his sister. And he's having this conversation where he says to no, Leia, uh, tell me about your mother, because Luke never knew his mother, right? And so, like, he wants, like, to get some, like, resemblance, some, like, you know, like, story from Leia. And Leia says to Luke... Uh, she died when I was young. I remember her as being very beautiful and very sad. Now, the issue there is that Padme, who's their mother, died in childbirth. Yes. After giving birth to them. And that uh, Bail Organa and his wife died when Alderaan exploded when Leia was like 18. So who is Leia talking about in that scene? It was originally meant to yeah. be Padme, but... Because of what happened in the prequels, because of what George Lucas wrote in the prequels, that scene in Return of the Jedi makes no sense at all now. Who is she talking about? Are we just sure have she... to like, gloss over that. Are we sure that Bill Organa's wife died in the explosion, though? See, that's, I, that's yeah, what I've always there. told myself. is oh, I'm sure she was referring to her, in actuality, her stepmother. Is, is that right? Yeah, because there are, um, this gets into the other canon media, uh, there are a couple other Leia-centric books, which have uh, Leia or, um, Bail Organa's wife raising uh, Leia, oh and, my and being alive when Leia is in her teens. So, yes, yeah, yeah so, the, and those are official canon storylines, so there's not, it's not like, it's not like Bail Organa remarried again, like that's not part of it, it's not like the original wife he had that raised Leia died when Leia was like five like that's that's not there that that's it's just a glaring hole in the storyline of, of Star Wars that you have to look past because there are major flaws in the plot uh, of each film as you get through it that just it's how it works and so like getting back to the rise of Skywalker there are significant holes from the Force Awakens to the Last Jedi to the rise of Skywalker and then my my most glaring one that I, 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 I like it, it bugs me about the film is that Palpatine shows up out of nowhere. Yes, um, and it's not fully explained if it's the Palpatine that died at the end of Return of the Jedi and somehow survived and was kept alive, or if it's a a clone type. Palpatine that we get, uh, it's not fully explained, and it needed to be fully explained. You, you absolutely needed to explain this in this film to have it make sense, because if you're going to have Palpatine be the planned return, 
in The Rise of Skywalker. You need to plant those seeds in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Like, even a simple line from Snoke, in which he says in The Last Jedi to Ben, we all have masters we answer to, or something to that effect, would have given a little bit more credence to Palpatine being back. I mean, Palpatine has a line in The Rise of Skywalker in which he says, I created Snoke. Yeah, I would love to know the story there and what that meant. And we see Snoke's cut-in-half body floating in a tank in The Rise of Skywalker in a, in a brief scene at some point in there. And so, like, you, we just get those, uh, like, it's just having Palpatine come back it feels completely out of place. Uh, and quite frankly, if it's meant to be Palpatine himself surviving the Return of the Jedi, I think it cheapens... Um, Vader's sacrifice in the yeah, Return of the Jedi slightly. Absolutely. That was my biggest issue with it, is just the whole idea, what? Like, I, I'm trying to look past it, you know, like, I, I, I'm trying to talk to myself and debating with buddies, yeah, maybe he's a clone, all right, I could buy that. But you're right, they don't go into that. It's like you're left to believe this is the guy that Vader threw down the shaft, and, and how, how is he back? Like, when is that... Remotely. Yeah, you know, like it, it feels kind of odd talking about plausibility when we're talking about laser swords and we're talking about it, yeah. like, like, but they're, they're also on the flip side, you do have the world and the universe that is built in the Star Wars world and to have Palpatine survive a, a fall down a reactor shaft in which he essentially blows up falling down the reactor shaft and then minutes later the entire Death Star explodes to have him survive that is completely implausible even by the fantastic standards and the plausible deniability we have with uh the star wars universe it doesn't make any sense at all and that's a like that that's a, a major plot hole that should have been explained earlier it should have been explained a little bit more thoroughly in the film and it should have been you should have had breadcrumbs leading up to it in the force awakens and in the last jedi yes. you needed to have that and my my hunch is that, like Lucas initially, is that they made it up as they went along, and that they had Ryan Johnson killed off Snoke, and then they said, wait a minute, who's going to be our bad guy? Who's going to create our conflict in uh, The Rise of Skywalker? And then somebody said, well, let's bring back Palpatine. And then everybody else was like, we don't have any better ideas. I guess we better do that. And so... Um, to have like Palpatine return not only in this film, I thought it was a mistake to essentially in the opening crawl announce Palpatine's back. Yes, agreed. Like if you're if you're going to bring Palpatine back, like have it be part of the story of him coming back within the Rise of Skywalker no. in some way. And you don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but you do need to explain that the Sith acolytes. Uh, had Palpatine's DNA, and it took 30 years for them to clone him. Okay, y'all buy that. Like, I'm, that, that's okay. I'm, if they do, if they do that, I'm on board. Uh, but they did it, and so he's just there, and you don't get a full explanation of it. And that's a, that's the glaring, glaring hole, the weakness that I think the film has in its use of Palpatine. However, if you look at this film individually and you just accept that Palpatine's back, it works. Yes. Like, it totally works. It's just that when you look at it within the lens of being the third film in a trilogy, it doesn't work in that respect. But overall, I honestly, like, I, I, lo I love this film. It was fun. Like, I, I've, I've seen it twice now, and I, I can't wait to see it a third time. And, like, 
I I enjoyed it, and I'm like I'm totally on board with it. Like he's like there are, there are a lot of fans who are unhappy with how certain characters were treated, and I, I will say, them sidelining Rose is an issue with this film um, for having for how much they built her up in the Last Jedi. I think she had like a minute and a half of screen time yeah. in this film. Um, that that's that's an issue. Uh, I thought that Finn's storyline uh, overall was pretty weak in The Rise of Skywalker. Like, he was just essentially meant, like, he didn't have, like, real, a real story arc in this, uh, like, a tight story arc. And that, and the, the issue was they sacrificed everybody's storylines for Rey and for Kylo Ren, uh, which were really well done storylines. So that, um, like I kind of, I kind of get that. I don't love it. Like I, I, there were a couple of things that like nitpicky I didn't like about the film, but overall, I honestly, I would put it fourth. Like I've got it in terms of uh, Empire, Rogue One, Return of the Jedi, and I've got Rise of Skywalker fourth behind those three. I want to talk about this because I, f- I felt like you know I'm not a huge fan of the Last Jedi. I've watched it m- multiple times now. It, it's grown on me a little bit, but still, big picture, I was not happy with the direction they they went in. Did you feel, as I did, that there was a conscious effort from J.J. Abrams to almost say, I, I felt like it was almost antagonistic to say, you know, that, that last movie, that forget about it. Because I felt that way. The, the whole message of The Last Jedi was let the past die. The whole message of this movie was it's the past that matters. Really. A lot of that was who are you? Where are you from? And a lot of those questions. And just look at the, the symbolic act of the ghost of Luke Skywalker grabbing the lightsaber. It's the exact opposite of what you saw in The Last Jedi and, and when the first yeah. time we saw Luke. Did you feel that or did you not? I, I did feel it. I, I felt like there were a lot. And, and the reason is, and I think this goes back to the formation of the trilogy and the mistakes that were made by Kathleen Kennedy and to a lesser extent J.J. Abrams. Um, so, when you're writing The Force Awakens, what they should have done is they should have arced out all the key storylines for every major character and said, this is how we want these characters to go through the entire trilogy. This is what we want race, symbolism, parentage to be. We want her to be Palpatine's granddaughter. We want to plant those seeds in The Force Awakens and continue that in The Last Jedi and have that reveal in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, what it felt like happened is they wrote The Force Awakens, and J.J. planted all these little seeds, uh, not only about Ray, but about the other major characters, including uh, Kylo Ren, mm-hmm. and then said to Ryan Johnson, all right, Ryan, here's what we built for you. You do what you want with it. And then Ryan went in a drastically different direction from what J.J. intended with what he did with The Force Awakens. Agreed. There, there is no doubt in my mind that J.J. never intended Ray to be parents of, or sorry, a daughter of no one. There is absolutely no way with how he edited and then wrote The Force Awakens from little things like from Ray having an X-Wing pilot doll made yes. of straw with her to her being dropped off at Jakku, a seemingly healthy and vibrant five-year-old girl, uh, and then is, it's absolutely horrified that her parents are leaving her um, to not only the conversations that Han and Leia have with Ray, but there's a conversation that Han has with Maz Kanata, where Maz says, tell me about the girl. And JJ cuts that scene right before Han can answer because Han knows Han knows in that moment 
Devray is Palpatine's granddaughter. I'm convinced of that. And I think that is what um, they set up, and that well, that is what originally was intended when J.J. wrote The Force Awakens. And that is Ryan Johnson said, you know what, I'm going to go in a different direction. And he did. And you, you could certainly argue that was the right choice to make. I actually, I am totally fine with Ray being Ray from Chaku, daughter of no one. I'm totally fine with that being the character decision. But what happened is J.J. then is tasked to come on and direct episode nine. Uh, and he originally wasn't going to. Like It was originally going to be Colin Trevorrow. Uh, yes. And they, they, they took him off the project very early on. I think yeah. probably after seeing the uh, last Jurassic World film. Uh, and said, no, you're out. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want to do that here. Yeah. Uh, and so J.J. then went back and said, you know what, I'm going to go back to what I originally intended in The Force Awakens. And the unfortunate part is that's why there's no cohesion between The Last Jedi and The uh, Rise of Skywalkers, because what Ryan wrote and did off of what J.J. did, J.J. essentially undid a lot of it. And you're right, the, the scene in which Ray throws the lightsaber and Luke catches it and literally says a Jedi's weapon should be treated with more respect. Yes. Um, yeah. Is like a, like that was a little, like that, I was, that was, mm, that's interesting uh, choice slot. of words. I loved it. I loved it. I loved this movie. I thought it was great. Uh, I do want to get your opinion. Some, one of the faults, one of the problems I had, though, was I thought it was too short. I thought the Knights of Ren, I mean, what a fascinating group of people that are barely touched on at all. And, you know, it again, should I, have been two films. Like, it's yeah. funny you say it was too short. It was still two and a half hours long, right? Um, yeah. And so what happened was, I think, again, J.J. said, these are the things I wanted to do or would have done in the second film that I'm now going to put in the third film. And the pace of The Rise of Skywalker is the fastest-paced Star Wars film that there is. It's not yeah. even close. Like, things, things start off immediately with Kylo Ren on, on Mustafar finding a Sith compass, and it just, like, goes at 100 miles an hour from there, and it never stops until the last moment of the film. Yeah. Um, and I think he just wanted to cram in as much as he could, uh, and that's why, like, there's these reports on Reddit, most of which I think is complete garbage, but the one thing I do uh, buy into is that uh, J.J.'s original cut of the film was probably 20 minutes longer, yeah. and I think the studio... Uh, viably said, well, we're not going to have a two-and-a-half, two-hour, 45-minute Star Wars film. You need to get it under two-and-a-half. And I think there were scenes that would have slowed the pace down to make it breathe a little bit um, that, that were cut, that J.J. probably was not too happy with that were cut. Uh, but this would have been better served as two films instead of one. Like, if they had made this a four-film uh, series uh, instead of three um, or if they would have included parts of what J.J. had in this film in The Last Jedi. I think it would have been a little bit more, the pacing would have been a little bit better. Um, but there were, I wanted to see more of The Knights of Ren. I actually wanted to see more of the space battle uh, on Mexico. I thought that was yeah. cut a little bit short for having seemingly thousands of ships, uh, thousands of Star Destroyers, and then tens of thousands of, of rebel-resistant ships fight it out. There was very little base fighting that was going on, and I, I think that's such a cool aspect of Star Wars, uh, and one of the great parts of Rogue One, it's got the best space battle of any of the films, and I wanted to see more of that on an epic scale uh, in this film that we just didn't see. thought Leia's death, though, was handled very well. I thought it was excellent. 
the moments with uh, Lando, awesome. I mean, it w- there were so many great parts of this movie. I, I still felt like it's it's up there. So where do you have it ranked? Uh, fourth? Can we get your full rankings yeah. to close the show? I know you're running uh, out on time. Let's get your full yeah, rankings. Yeah, I got a few minutes. Uh, let's, let's do reverse order here. Um, Attack of the Clones is 11th for me. Uh, Attack of the Clones is the worst of the Star Wars films. It's got the worst acting. It has redeemable moments, but the plot holes in Attack of the Clones make every other film combined seem like it's a Shakespeare. <laughs> and, like, it's just it's, it's just massive issues with the storyline, the plot, um, and it just, it, it's got redeemable moments, like the, the fight scene between Django and Obi-Wan is fantastic. The, the Starfighter chase scene between Django and Obi-Wan is fantastic. The Battle of Geonosis is entertaining and good in the arena, uh, but overall, it's, it's the worst of the films. Yeah, Yoda at the end there, and, it's one of the best ever. Yeah, the Yoda fight with... Uh, with Count Dooku is, is fantastic. I agree. It's got, like, it's rewatchable. But I mean, in terms of the 11 films, it's, it's definitely 11th. Agreed. Uh, I put The Phantom Menace as 10th. Um, I put The Phantom Menace ahead of Attack of the Clones purely because of Darth Maul. And I think he's an amazing character. Uh, and, and just uh, such that, that fight scene between him and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan is just um, is probably the second, well, actually probably now the third best fight scene. Uh, lightsaber fight scene of the uh, entire series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I put, uh, now I'm going to make a, a quick uh, caveat here. I have Solo ninth, but I really like Solo. And so I think in terms of like tiers, the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones are 10th and 11th for me, but they're clearly like a much lower tier than Solo. Solo is a really re- rewatchable film. It's fun. It's, uh, I think it got a lot of grief. I think it came out too close to The Last Jedi. I think if it had come out a year later at Christmas instead of May, it would have been a lot better and it would be a lot more well-received. Uh, but I've got Solo Ninth. I've got Revenge of the Sith Eighth. And Revenge of the Sith actually is a film that kind of grows on me the more I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got like some amazing moments. It's, it's a very down film. It's a depressing film. Uh, certainly the... Order 66 scene and seeing Anakin and Obi-Wan and the fall of Anakin. Like it's a, it's a kind of a depressing film, but yet, um, it's still pretty good. But I have it eighth, uh, in my list. Um, Force Awakens, I have seventh. Uh, The Force Awakens was essentially purposefully a new hope 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of things about The Force Awakens that I loved. I, I think that the introduction of Rey is fantastic. Um, I, I love Finn's storyline in The Force Awakens, and so um, it's it's good. Like it's, it's it's a good film, and I'll certainly rewatch it. Uh, I've got A New Hope six. This is where kind of my my list gets a little controversial uh, because I've got um, the original Star Wars A New Hope six on my list. I, a New Hope doesn't hold up for me as well as the other films when you rewatch them. Wow. Like it's, it's good, and it certainly plants the seeds for everything. But it's like the the fight scenes aren't that good. The production's not that good with it. The the acting, quite frankly, Luke is is whiny and annoying in um, A New Hope, and he grows certainly in the course of that trilogy as Mark Hamill grew as an actor. Um, but A New Hope is like it's good, but it's not in my top five. Uh, I've got The Last Jedi fifth. There are a lot of things I like about The Last Jedi, um, including. Ray and Kylo Ren's dynamic and the fight scene in the throne room of Snoke's throne room alone 
is is absolutely amazing um, and is worth that film, uh, you know, by itself. Uh, so I've got The Last Jedi Fifth. I've got The Rise of Skywalker Fourth, as we kind of just discussed. Uh, Return of the Jedi, I have third. I've got such a soft spot for Return of the Jedi. And um, Anakin's coming back to the light, Vader coming back to the light. And then um, not only the opening of the film with uh, Jabba's Palace and the barge and the Sarlacc, and the, which, which, what a great way to spend the first 45 minutes of that film uh, with that scene. It's absolutely fantastic. And then you get back into the overall con- conflict of the Empire and the Rebels. The Return of the Jedi is great. It's a great film. Uh, I've got Rogue One second. Like, Rogue One is a film to me that gets better every single time I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the best acted overall among the cast of any of the Star Wars films. It's got a very tight storyline. It, it moves at a really good pace, but yet its pace is not like breakneck like Rise of Skywalker. You've got these moments with Jyn Erso and her father's hologram, which for two minutes the film just stops, and it's an amazing scene. You've got this moment of Jin with her father, Galen Erso, when he dies. That's a great scene. Uh, yet you have the best space action of the entire series. And you also have uh, one of the best scenes in the entire series, and that's Vader um, against the Rebels uh, at the very end of the film. It's a 60-second it's a oh, yeah. scene. But it's absolutely amazing. Like It's amazing. It's peak, peak Darth Vader that we really never got. Um, than any of the other films, and I've got nothing will top Empire. Like no Star Wars film will be better than Empire. The bar is that high with that film that I, I don't think it can ever be topped. Great stuff, Kevin. Just great stuff. I, mean, I can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts on on Star Wars. I'm sure this is going to get a lot of great feedback, and maybe we can have you on again after I watch it a second time. We get a little bit more in depth. Yeah, and we need to talk about the Mandalorian season, too. Oh, yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, which I loved, which is a must-watch. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll we'll have to do that on a different podcast. Sounds great, Kevin. Hey, man, have a great night. Uh, Anything anything you want to mention? Yeah, we'll continue to look at NBCSportsChicago.com and the My Teams app. Um, Casey Johnson is doing amazing work daily with our Bulls coverage, so I I highly recommend that you check that out. And and certainly – uh, continue watching the Bulls because uh, there is there is hope there for the future. Amen. And uh, the latest Bulls talk was fantastic with Darnell Mayberry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Darnell that. and uh, Jason did a really good job with that one. Yep, great job. So, all right, man. Talk to you again soon. Thanks Thank again, you, Fred. Talk to you, sir. Bye, bye.